Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. On the last episode of Guilt. Yeah, I come back and I found it hanging on the fence, you know. And, um, yeah, and I looked at it and it was a valid airline ticket, so I thought, you know, I took it in the cops. They didn't even want to know about it, to be honest. You know, and then, then a couple of weeks later, the, they started looking for them and the shit hit the fan. She seemed uneasy we were there. It seemed odd that she did not speak, at least to her companion. She appeared to have applied makeup to her face not many hours before we saw her. Certainly at some time that day. And he would just search for years, walking all the tracks, going off the tracks. It, it just, um, it could just consume them. I was the last one that probably ever saw them alive, and I, I've never told anybody. They've obviously been digging, and I've just pulled a bone out. There's a piece of bone right here. From Brevity Studios, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. Is it just a stone, is it? Yeah, with his name on it. Jeez, it's pretty overgrown in here. Oh, it wasn't this overgrown back then. Oh, it wasn't. This is all new. It's 30 years of growth here. Do you remember, was the stone on flat yeah, or was it on a hill? I'll find it. It's just here somewhere. We came up there, we might have walked up a little bit. Was there. it on flat or was it on a hill? No, it's just here. Right where we are. Uh, oh, what's the one So weird to just stand here and think back to that night. I'll try looking back this way a bit more. In episode one, I left you part way up the private metal road that leads up into the forest and the location of the discovery of Urban Hogland's body by pig hunters in 1991. As I met the wall of pines that marked the entry into that place, I paused, deciding that we would make that leap at a later point. Now in episode 5, it's time we face the reality and walk that dark path. The road is private and owned by a forestry company that runs a large block of pine trees that are destined for the New Zealand timber industry. Access by vehicle is only by a locked gate. And today, we don't have the key, so we're on foot. 
We wind our way up deeper into the forest for about 30 minutes, before we eventually come around a corner into a spot that looks different. It's a semi-open grassy glade in amongst all this forest. It's so quiet and remote here. No one would hear you scream. No one would come for help. Alan has been here before, and together we walk across to where Urban's body was discovered in the thick native bush on the other side of the glade. The grass abruptly gives way to what can be more accurately described as jungle. Huge Nikau palms provide a complete canopy above, and below, rocks, moss, and other smaller ferns and vines give a dark, foreboding feel. Moving amongst the rocks, our feet are constantly being caught in vines and old rotting logs. We're searching for one very special rock, a stone erected decades ago as a memorial for Sven Urban Hoglin. But it turns out, just like the mysteries of this case, it's proving difficult to find. Look, there's someone's been walking up through here. Is there a tag there somewhere? A tag? Yeah. I mean, that looks like someone's been walking through there. Yeah, a marker tag we're looking for in the tree. Let's see it. Like a no, blue. There's a tag. Oh, yeah. Over there. Was it like a rock that had been put there? Or been put there. Okay. I've got a feeling it's just there somewhere. Okay. But we'll find it. Right. Oh, I know. We'll find it. So it has to be in this area. Where are you? Where are you, mate? Right now, I'm standing in the area that a skeleton was discovered two years and six months after Heidi and Urban were last seen in early April of 1989. On October 10th, 1991, at 9.16pm, police received a call from a man saying his son had found a body while pig hunting in the Parakawai. The discovery of a gold ring with Heidi engraved on the inside would confirm that these remains were of missing Swede Sven Urban Hoglin. But with this discovery, there lay a problem. A big problem for police. Because according to their theory and key witness testimony, this body shouldn't be here. It should be chopped up, and buried at sea. It's interesting. It's the first time in the bloody Western world, mate, where um, you know, private prosecutors have had to bloody do the police's job for them and get these pricks convicted of perjury. That is Arthur William Taylor, a self-confessed lifetime criminal come reformed prison lawyer, who in 2017 successfully prosecuted secret witness C for perjury for the evidence he gave in the trial of David Wayne Tamahedi in 1990. If you'll remember, the Crown called three secret jailhouse witnesses in the trial, each with their own story of how David Tamahedi had confessed to being involved in the murders of Heidi and Urban. Before we hear more from Arthur, let's hear exactly who these witnesses were and why what they said is so important. Secret Witness A was a repeat serious offender, having served time in New Zealand and Australia for murder and robbery. 
In the trial, he stated that he met Tamahiri in a Mount Eden prison. And while there, Tamahiri told the witness that him and three mates met the Swedes on Saturday the 8th of April. And that him and his friends had attacked and raped the Swedes. He then claimed Tamahiri told him that when they were finished raping them, they took them to where he killed them because there was nowhere to hide the bodies in that area. Secret Witness A also produced a number of maps, hand-drawn by David Tamahiri in prison at the request of Secret Witness A to better help him visualise where all the details of the Swedes took place, as he was being told by Tamahiri. One being a detailed map of the Tararu Creek Road, marked with an X, where he claims the car was parked, and another being Crosby's Clearing, where Secret Witness A says Tamahiri told him the rapes took place. Without doubt, this would appear to be a damning piece of evidence. And Tamahiri himself would corroborate that he had indeed drawn these maps. However, Tamahiri states that he drew these on the request of Secret Witness A, who had told him his son was needing detailed information of the area. Defence counsel argued that the hand-drawn maps showed a significant level of detail. And they do. I'll share these on my Instagram and our Facebook group. But to give you an idea, they show a considerable amount of detail of the greater area, including time frames to walk from place to place and distance in kilometres. Defence counsel Nicholson stated, I suggest if you look at those plans there, there's a lot of detail there which would enable someone who hadn't been there to get to know something about the place. The detail down the bottom, why wrap a hut three hours? Booms flat four and a half to five hours. Table Mountain, five hours. I put it to you that he drew those plans at your request to give you information about what the situation was up in the area and not to indicate where any alleged meetings or rapes or attacks took place. The clear inference being made here is that Secret Witness A had lured Tamahedi into drawing these maps under false pretenses that his son needed a map of the area. Under cross-examination by Defence Counsel Nicholson, Secret Witness A was asked why Tamahedi didn't mark an X on the map of Crosby's clearing to show where the rapes occurred, as he had done where the car was found. The witness stated that Tamahedi hadn't marked that spot, but had simply pointed to it, being by an old forestry hut. And when asked where the X was for where he said he met the Swedes, again, the witness claimed Tamahedi only verbally told him it was two kilometres from the turn-off to Table Mountain. And what did Secret Witness A want in exchange for these maps he'd obtained from Tamahedi? The prospect of a reduced sentence for his assistance. And his assistance in the Tamahedi case was taken into account in having his heroin trafficking charge reduced from 12 to 8 years. In his final cross-examination of Secret Witness A, Nicholson contended, I put it to you that when Mr. Tamahiri arrived at Mount Eden Prison in a situation where you could talk to him, you deliberately went out of your way to talk to him. I suggest that you encouraged him to talk about the circumstances of his taking the Swedish person's car. I put it to you that all he told you was about the taking of the car, and he never told you he met the Swedes. Secret Witness A replied, Oh yes, he told me he met the Swedes. You can bet your bottom dollar on that. The Crown then called Secret Witness B, who has since had his name suppression lifted and can be named as Stephen Carper. Carper also claimed to have met Tamahedi at Mount Eden Prison. And while there, says he was watching TV with Tamahedi when a TV report came on about the Swedish couple. He claims Tamahedi said, Those cunts don't worry me. And that they wouldn't find them. He'd made sure of it. 
He then states that on separate occasions, Tamahedi told him that he'd cut the cunts up, that he'd disposed of the bodies, and they were looking in the wrong place. Finally, the Crown called arguably their key secret witness, Secret Witness C, or Roberto Conchi Harris, who had his name suppression lifted in 2017 after a successful prosecution by Arthur William Taylor, who I spoke to recently about his life in this case. Today, Arthur is 67, and is an intriguing story in his own right. He claims to have escaped from prison on 12 separate occasions, and ultimately decided to spend his time in prison studying law, a skill he then used to fight for, among other things, prisoners having the right to vote. Much like many that end up in the prison system, Arthur doesn't make excuses, but tells me that it all started when he was put in a boy's home for the unforgivable act, wagging school. Arthur is passionate, speaks fast, and has a strong Kiwi accent. But don't be fooled, he's no dummy, and is worth listening to. It's rare that we get the opportunity to pull back the curtain and hear details like this about life inside prison and its accompanying legal system. Yeah, well, obviously, you know, well, I've done a lot of years in jail. I originally come into, into the system um, when I was put into the boys' home, which you may have heard of, which some of your listeners may have heard of, yep. a notorious um, state institution that turns, you know, the, the Royal Commission was described as a pipeline to jail. Um, I was trying to run to a wagging school. And the ironic thing was, he plenty at that stage never had a school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and of course, back in them days, um, people um, that were thrown in those places, they didn't, they, they separate the, what's now youth justice, they were, they were mixed up with the kids that might be in there for care and protection, you know. Yeah. So they, they, you know, they were able to <laughs> breeding ground for crime, unfortunately. 100,000 kids went through it. Sure. <clears throat> yeah, so, so and a population of um, less than three, uh, 3 million. So that kind of got you off on a bad foot to start with. Well, bad foot. You take on wars. I mean, when I first went there, you know, um, I always remember this, right? One of, the, and I'd never been separated from my family before. We had a, I had a very loving family, right? Yeah. We'd we'd grown up in a farming community. Um, my parents owned a farm up in the Hokianga. Yeah. You know, we were close, very close in that community up there. Um, and you know, you you, you didn't go to school if, 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 if people needed, you know, help with their hay baling and things like that. You know. Yeah, as long as you learnt, yeah, that was that, the main thing. But the attitude's completely different when we moved to Marston. Yeah. Yeah, completely different, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I got involved in the system and spent a lifetime involved in crime. And uh, there was no need for any of it, to be quite frank. None of, my, none of the rest of my family's ever been in trouble with the law. Yeah. You know? I was like the black sheep of the family. And it shows that, you know, when you were in prison, you know, you didn't let that time go to waste. And so you studied law. Absolutely not. And, um, you know, honestly, um, at the end of the day, um, I saw that, you know, I, I was disgusted with the, you know, the whole integrity of the criminal justice system was at fault, was at stake here, in the way I saw it. Um, you know, the, a fundamental principle of our law, tenet of our law, is that everyone's equal before the law. Mm. And this guy, because he was a Crown witness and... and, and very important to you know the prosecution, the integrity of the prosecution case, protecting it at all costs. Um, they were quite repeated to turn a blind eye to um, a serious, I saw the serious miscarriage of justice. So, and I asked a lot of it as payback. A lot of the work I've done, I've seen as a payback to the community for the crime I've committed over the years. Yeah. And um, that was basically it. Okay, so let's fill in the backstory here. Roberto Conchi Harris at the time of Tamahedi's case, was simply known as Secret Witness C. He was called by the Crown to give evidence as a jailhouse informant. Crown Prosecutor Davison called Harris to the stand, where he told the court that in March of 1990, while in prison, he met David Tamahedi. Harris claimed that shortly after arriving in the prison, he struck up a friendship with Tamahedi and they had six conversations over a period of three to four months about the case. When asked by Davison the first occasion he spoke to him, 
Harris replied that while in Tamahiti's cell, he was telling Tamahiti about his own case up north. And Tamahiti started telling him how he'd met this Swedish couple at a picnic area. And in Tamahiti's cell, displayed on the wall, was a fairly large map of the Coromandel area. Harris states that he joked with Tamahiti, did he intend on going diving, as the map contained a lot of coastline. And Tamahiti replied, no, the clowns are searching in the wrong area, and that they wouldn't find the bodies there. Harris stated that Tamahiti said he had convinced the Swedes about how well he knew the area, and talked them into letting him show them the area, and that at some point he assaulted the guy and tied him up before sexually assaulting the girl. He went on to say he had Donald ducked the guy, which is prison slang for sexual assault. He then took a lump of wood and beat him over the head. Harris said, I can recall him saying the first sexual assault happened in the bush somewhere and that she was terrified. And while this was happening, the man was tied up to a tree. He then continued to sexually assault the girl over a two to three day period after disposing of the guy. He continued. The sexual assaults occurred in a tent he said he had found in a farmer's shed. After two or three days, he ended up strangling her in the tent. According to Harris, Tamahiri told him this all took place in the search area somewhere, and that at one stage, he had a brother or cousin in the bush with him. When asked if Tamahiri had said he saw anyone in the bush, Harris said he said yes. He said that he had Heidi at some stage in the bush, and that a couple come across them, and that he almost got sprung due to this. Davison then questions Harris on where the guy was when the couple came upon them. He responded initially by saying that Tamahiri told him the guy had already been disposed of, before suddenly changing tack and saying, that's right, I recall he said the guy was still tied up at that stage, and she was too terrified to do anything. When Davison asks what she was doing at the time the couple came across them, Harrison replies, I think sitting down. Davison then moves on to ask if Tamahiri ever mentioned any other locations. And he said, only where he said he had taken the bodies out to sea and disposed of them, some area between Thames and Wilson Bay. He said that he weighted the bodies down. He took them 15 to 20 minutes out to sea in an aluminum boat he stole from the Tapu Hotel camping ground before scrubbing it and returning it. When asked about the Swede's clothing, Harris says Tamahiri told him he'd disposed of some of the gear at a second-hand shop in Auckland. In particular, fishing gear, clothing and a camera. And also, that police spotted Heidi's jacket in his wife's home in Auckland. He also states that Tamahiri told him that he had taken the Swedish guy's watch and given it to one of his sons. Finally, Harris is asked about secret witness A, and if Tamahiri mentioned this man's name. Harris replies, yes, and that Tamahiri had told him that he regretted certain conversations he had had with him regarding the Swedish case. Of course, as we all know, Urban's body would be discovered in October of 1991, almost one year after this trial and David Tamahiri's conviction. And what was Urban's body able to tell police from beyond the grave? That the secret witness evidence about the disposing of the bodies at sea was untrue. And when examined by forensics, Urban's skull showed no signs of any head trauma, i.e. he hadn't been beaten around the head with a lump of wood. In fact, knife marks in his clothing and a small nick on his vertebrae indicated a bloody and violent stabbing and possible decapitation attempt. Now, the watch. 
this watch has been the cause of so much interest in the media, and also so much confusion. The weight placed on the watch by the prosecution was not what is commonly believed. The reality is this. It was a boarder, Dwayne Davenport, who told police that he had seen Tamahiti's son wearing a watch that matched the description of Urban's. The possibility that this could have indeed been Urban's watch then just became another piece of the broader rope of the circumstantial case. The case itself never hinged on this watch. But more importantly, what does this watch tell us in light of what we've just heard? It's plainly obvious that Tamahedi never told him that he gave the watch to his son. Because he didn't. Which means that Roberto Harris's testimony is either in part or wholly untrue. And what does this new evidence mean for the already convicted Tamahedi? After the discovery of a body that was not only supposed to have been buried at sea, but also 73 kilometres away from where the alleged crimes were supposed to have been committed, and a watch that shouldn't have been there. Surely, this would warrant a new trial. No. In May of 1992, the Court of Appeal rejected the case, arguing that there was nothing substantive in the defence claims that the skeleton had revealed new evidence and that the Crown had provided convincing circumstantial proof. Then, in a simply bizarre turnaround, in August of 1995, Roberto Harris would come forward and sign a sworn affidavit claiming that he had lied on the stand in Tamahedi's trial. He even went live with popular TV broadcaster Paul Holmes and stated, They definitely have an innocent man inside. However, he then turned around only a few weeks later and retracted this affidavit, claiming that his confession came under the threat from fellow prisoners. He then, in 2007, hand-wrote a note to Tamahedi in which he said his trial evidence was all false and fabricated by police. Fast forward to 2017, and jailhouse lawyer Arthur William Taylor successfully launches a private prosecution against Harris for his perjury in the Tamahedi trial. Harris is convicted on all eight counts and is sentenced to eight years. In his sentencing, Judge Fata J noted, There was a high level of premeditation given the scope of your false evidence. Your material implicated Mr. Tamahiri in the offending. It was evidence of a cellmate confession and corroborated other evidence described in the Court of Appeal and in Mr. Tamahiri's second appeal as crucial to the Crown case. Namely, the identification evidence of two trampers, Mr. Cassidy and Mr. Nalf. Your evidence was used to support, in fact, the application for the admission of Mr. Cassidy and Mr. Nalf's identification evidence. The Court of Appeal, in concluding the Trampers' identification evidence should be admitted, noted its conclusion was strengthened by the cumulative effect of the evidence against Mr. Tamahiri, including the cellmate confession evidence. The motivations as to why Harris might have lied are speculative. But in his affidavit, he stated that Tamahedi never made any confession to him of any kind, that Tamahedi had always maintained his innocence, and that he, Roberto Harris, no longer wanted to be associated with the fabrication of evidence. Finally, He stated he was drawn to the prospect of giving evidence by the offer of $100,000 from a police detective, as well as assistance at his parole hearing. Whether police ever did offer $100,000, we don't know. But it is known that the senior detective on the Tamahedi case, John Hughes, did specifically fly south to speak on behalf of Harris at a parole hearing. Like I said in the previous episode, 
I'm not taking sides in this case. At this point, I'm not claiming Tamahedi's guilt or innocence. I'm simply presenting the facts of this case. So you have a complete understanding as we move forward. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. So we combined our talents, and we got um, we had a successful prosecution. Yeah, you, well, you certainly did. Um, yeah, you know when yeah. when you started out with with that prosecution, were you in touch with Harris at all? You know, no, 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 not Harris was a protection prison inmate, being kept in protection. Um, you know, yeah, so um, yeah. He wasn't. In, I don't know where he was. Um, I've only had. I've had. Obviously, I've met Harris. He actually in uh, Rumataka. Um, one time after I escaped down there, um, they chucked me over with the protective segregation prison on a cell on my own. But they were able to come past the front of my cell, and I spotted him. And I said, "I said, what the hell did you do that to David for?" He says, "You don't know it all, Arthur." He says, oh, "He he did things to me and all this shit, you know, just bullshit excuses." Oh, really? Yeah, really. Yep, really. I was disgusted with the prick. Yeah. He made every excuse under the sun, Ryan, to um, justify his actions. Yeah. At the end of the day, it amounted to this. He dug a hole for himself, double murder, double life sentence. He dug the hole and he pulled poor old David into the bloody grave trying to climb over him to get out. End of story. Mm. He even tried to sell out Mark Lundy. Same claim Mark Lundy confessed to him. A load of bullshit. Well, he spent extensive resources investigating that and come to the conclusion that they wouldn't use Harris as a witness in that case. Operation Spring. Okay. It's not well known, but um, yeah, he, he's a serial person. Any high-profile case he's tried to involve himself in. What What's the sort of um, you know, you know, in prison? I mean, what's how do people? How is that looked on? People that narcs. Yeah, I guess that's if. It... Well, we've got two kinds of narcs. We've got the ones that make shit up, make stories up, right? Yeah. And we've got the others that um, you know, let's put it this way. Um, the community has got an interest in informants and narcs, you know, they lead to a successful prosecution of a lot of crimes. But the evidence needs to be corroborated. I mean, you're dealing with fundamentally dishonest people, a whole lifetime of dishonesty. Hmm. Suddenly, why are they telling the truth, you know? And, but I mean, let's say one of these says, let's say, says, X told me um, he shot so and so, and here's where the gun is. He's told me that, and they go and dig up the bloody gr- and find the gun. Well, that's corroboration, okay? Hmm. When you've got a case where it's just word against word, you know, and when you're dealing with such a fundamentally dishonest person, why suddenly can they be believed to put someone in prison? Yeah. It's completely wrong. Now, here, here's a question you and your listeners want to ask yourselves, Ryan. Ryan okay? Yeah. Okay. Right. There are fundamental safeguards. And, uh, these secret witnesses and that, they, they get better. They get, um, they're actually treated better in the system than the police. I mean, if a police officer says that someone's confessed to him, there's all sorts of safeguards. He's got to record it. Video record it most of the time. You know, he can't just get up and say word against word or be thrown out. Why is one of these people able to do that? They're more they're treated as being more honest than police. And the thing with it which is, is crazy. It's crazy when you think about it. And the thing that, that the most fucked up thing about it in my mind is <laughs> that a, a witness can't. It's not they're not reliable if they stand to gain from what they're saying. Absolutely. This, this, this is not a witness who's he's, he's, he's been walking down the street and seen a crime committed in front of him. This is a person who's in the complete power of the state. His freedom depends on it. 
you know? Yeah. And they know this. They don't need to be coached. They're always looking out for a chance, right? Mm. And it's just completely wrong. And I mm. sort of, you know, the, the whole integrity of the criminal justice system was at stake here. We had to send a message to these people, you know, um, cause the police morning said, well, they've never, the police had never prosecuted any of their own witnesses for perjury ever. So the message had to get out, well, hey, the police might not prosecute you. But you better bloody understand that other people might prosecute you, you know? Do you see this as a police problem? You know, the police are presenting this opportunity, or is this more I, a case where the you know these guys are coming forward themselves looking for any opportunity? Oh yeah, look, they don't need any prompting by the police. I'll come forward, but the police, the police, um, sh- no, I mean they're not stupid. The police, I mean, let's be frank. If they were a witness for the other side, the police would say, "Oh, you can't believe it. We're just person says. Look at their record." Yeah, I mean, a whole life from dishonesty. And um, would you? I said to the jury, "Would you buy a used car off this person?" Without, you know, like if he told you to set a new bloody tyres on the battery, you'd check the tyre depth in the bloody battery state, wouldn't you? Yeah. And yet the prosecution, the Crown, the Crown, for God's sake, are asking you to put this man in jail for life or whatever, on the word of one of these people. Yeah. And, Would you like to be in that position, or one of your family or your loved ones, you know? Yeah, God, no. It's wrong. It's completely yeah. wrong. And it undermines all the rest of it, the, the, the safeguards in our justice system. People in jail were terrified, you know, these, one of these people come through. You put yourself, you're an innocent man, let's say, you're in jail, mm. you've been remanded in custody and you're, you're waiting for and you're quite confident you're going to be acquitted, that justice will prevail. And one of these people comes along and completely destroys you. Assume you must have a bit of an understanding of the of the <laughs> Swede's case. What are your thoughts on the other witnesses, witness A and B? Uh, both the same. Kapak, I got his name suppression lifted. Yeah. I've noted. Um, he is a complete liar as well, you know. He, he, yeah, he could, it came out that he could never have been in Mount Eden at the same times and places he claims that David was making confessions to him, okay? Yeah. Now, the other one, he's a serial bloody perjurer. He's given evidence in five or six trials that occurred while he was in Mount Eden on serious drug charges, you know? Oh, oh he Suddenly, you know, he's receiving more confessions than the average bloody priest with a dozen <laughs> white cloth. You know, every single high-profile case back there, a certain period in our time where the police's case might have been lacking in strength, these people were suddenly on the front of it. Mm. And, 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 of course, when they give the evidence, oh, they're in danger. We've got armed police around the courthouse. We're, 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 we're surrounding the place. All drama. They give it in an atmosphere of drama. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and, the, and the jury's thinking, because they, they don't know half of what's going on. Um, oh, he must be telling the truth. His life's in danger. He's prepared to put his life on the line. Complete bullshit. Is it kind of like common knowledge in prison that oh that that these guys are all full of shit? Absolutely. I knew I knew Harris. Harris was one of the biggest bullshit artists in Perry. He got you know he used to run up gambling debts, and I'll tell you why. He actually my theory is why he can't, is at the time he came forward to the police, he was his life was actually getting quite serious danger itself at Perry because he'd been running up gambling debts all over the place. He'd already been smashed on the back of the head with a bloody sock full of bullshit. But no, which he now claims, which he now claims, was a result of him giving evidence. They are bullshit. The old debts all over the place. I was going to get dealt to. Yeah, mm. you know. But the jury know nothing of this. How the hell can you expect them to make a bloody decision on matters like this? Not in possession of all the information. Go and read the cross examination of Harris at the trial. You'll see the lawyers didn't do a da- damn thing about any of this. Mm. Yeah, it's you know? The jury knew nothing. You can't blame the juries. They can only act on what's in front of them. I'm quite passionate about this, Ronnie, because you know I've seen the end results of it. Yeah, I yeah, and it's great. You know, I've I, seen I families that. destroyed. I've seen families destroyed. You know, on the word of these people, hmm. and they're rats. They're often see rat bags, most of them, all of them. Yeah, not all. You know, most of our cops are good cops. Hmm. Yeah, you know, but these people that get involved with these secret witness screams, a lot of them are on the DPS, the Domain Protection Squad. They they get immersed in their bullshit. It's a drama. You know, it's like they're part of the movie now. You know. I've got a great deal of sympathy for some of these lawyers that have to cross-examine these. They don't know. How the hell do they know? Their name's suppressed. I mean, otherwise, a lot of people would come forward, and I've had witnesses come forward. Jeez, if only we'd known Harris was a witness, other we could have told you what a lie. We could have given evidence about his lies and shit, you know? Yeah. They don't know nothing. Yeah. That's another thing. That's why I thought, like, Peter and Nail to get that bastard, excuse the language, yeah, you're right. um, you know, name suppression lifted. So people could see, where's he? Who the hell are the police using as witnesses? I mean, they're putting this man forward as a witness of integrity and truth. And this is the sort of character he is. What the hell's going on? I think we had a fundamental shift in you know, people's views because the police have very rarely ever tried to use one of these people again. The last case, the cold, it was the um, 
Oh, what was it? What was that arm shooting up in there? The Red Fox Tavern case, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Same sort of thing. But the police, the judge actually ruled his evidence out because I was going to give evidence in that case because I know the chappy. And uh, the judge did the Bruce Evans. And usually they leave it to the jury who are ill-equipped to deal with these people. But the judge in this case said, no, his evidence is not coming in. Yeah, it, 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 it's, a, it's a tough well, you're one. Not but I firmly believe, you know, obviously it's not up to you or me to bloody decide, David. But we can decide whether there was sufficient fucking evidence, credible evidence to convict the man of double murder. We need to do that because, you know, it affects the integrity of our justice system. Yeah. Because who the hell wants to be convicted on that sort of evidence? Who? As you can likely tell, Arthur is incredibly passionate about this topic. And I've got to say I agree with him. To rely on the uncorroborated evidence of jailhouse informants like Harris in a double murder trial with no evidence is clearly troubling. And Harris was not some petty criminal. Yeah, the bugger. Yeah, he, got, he was. He, he was. He did a particularly double horrific murder, right? He killed a young couple because he wanted the cannabis crop, right? He murdered them and left them lying in their fucking rural driveway for their kids to find when they come up and score on the school bus. Well, suddenly. He gives us great information to the, you know, to the great community service to the bloody well, son David Tamari confessed to him. And suddenly, he is, and these are un, 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 unquestionable facts, and, and, and the gardener claimed it had nothing to do with it. A senior detective in charge of a major murder, high profile case, flies to the parole board, appears on behalf of Harris. What do you think the parole board's going to think of that? Within a year, he's released. Here, Arthur refers to the gardener. This was the nickname given to Detective Inspector John Hughes by prison inmates. Yeah, he, he finally convinces the parole to let him out again. And then guess what happens? The first day he's out, he tries to rape a 14-year-old. Mm. Yeah, you know, it just goes on and on and on. The New Zealand justice system is an extremely complex beast with many, many moving parts. Most of which you and I will never see nor be aware of. And while a vast majority of this is for good, it can't be denied that the butterfly effect of a single action can be massive. In the case of Roberto Harris, he was granted early parole. We can't say unequivocally that this was due to the Tamahedi case, but on the very first day of his release, he attempted to rape a 14-year-old girl. Ultimately, Harris flip-flopped on his evidence. One minute it's fact, the next it's fiction. He was found guilty of perjury for his Tamahedi evidence. But even in his perjury trial, he maintained that Tamahedi had in fact confessed to him. And as an almost laughable extra, in 2018, Arthur Taylor attempted to prosecute Harris for perjury committed in his perjury trial. So what to believe? Fact or fiction? Harris died in prison in 2021, so we can't ask him. But I think if we could, it would serve little good. Because any credibility he might have had vanished a long time ago. But for now, there's one thing we know for absolute certain. His evidence about Urban's body being buried at sea is rubbish. Come on, mate, where are you? Where are you? So it's literally just a rock. So it's just a rock, nothing more. I'm not seeing anything like that. Is that a rock? No. So right now we're sort of just in this thick bush, all native bush. There's rocks kind of strewn around underneath the undergrowth, you know, the 
foliage that's dropped down over the decades and it's a bit of a needle in a haystack there's rocks everywhere I, I sort of expected it to be a bit more open but no it's certainly not oh man it's just so sad thinking about what happened here 30 years ago the stories these trees could tell I wouldn't lie if I said that walking around I sort of find myself looking over my shoulder back down towards that road we walked in there are some tracks sort of around which is kind of weird I don't know why anyone would be here but I mean this place is really really remote We've been searching the area for about an hour now. At times, on hands and knees, crawling through ferns and scraping moss off of rocks searching for a name carved into the stone. I spot a coloured piece of plastic tied to a tree, and then slightly further along, another. An eerie artefact left behind by the police recovery team over 30 years ago, but still looking like they could have been left last week. Yeah. There's another tag up here as well. So do you think those are related to this? Yeah, they are. They are, okay. They're cop tags. So there's little sort of pink-orange tags hanging off a few of the trees, which should be sending us in the right direction. Oh, it sort of flattens off a bit here. Maybe. Look for that rock. I mean, if those police tags are where... Yeah, they are. I mean, like... Not like something... Yeah, should we go back there and... So either those tags are leading this direction. These will lead out to the track. Okay. They've come in. Oh, they've come in that way? Yeah. Not from the other side? No. But there's a tag there. So you're telling me those tags are still there from 30 years ago? Yep. Everywhere you look you just see more rocks. But none of them, they're all quite low-lying. They're all sort of at ground level. Apparently this one is sitting quite high off the ground, but it's eluding us. Just like Heidi, Urban today doesn't want to be found. It looks like the exact spot Urban was found is going to elude us. But, you know, we're in the right area, apparently within only a few metres, but so much crap has fallen on the ground and there's so much sort of overgrowth that it's likely just hidden away or buried or who knows. But one thing, if I just head out of here, You know, it's only, what's the time now? It's only 2.30, and you can already get the feeling of it getting dark. So if I walk out to the edge, so here there's a glade, or what was a glade, and now it's, there's some, some trees and some pine trees have grown in there, but it's still quite open, but you can only sort of speculate that did they come in here to camp and then Urban's been murdered here in the glade and then where I'm standing now is the remains of an old fence which was apparently actually new at the time 
his bodies then had to be dragged over this fence and dragged back probably another 30, 40 metres back into the bush. There. There. That's where the body... See the grass? Yeah. See the grass here? See the fence? Yeah, you see over here that way? There was a new fence back in 1989. The farmer over here put that fence up. Yeah. So at the time the fence was new? New. This here was all no pines, it was just grass. Just a nice glade. There were some big gum trees all up there. You'll see it in the photo. There's a big rock here somewhere. Mm. That might be it there. That he keeps talking about. So either that one or another one up here. Remember the photo I sent you of the cops? No, all the Toyotas up the tra track. Yeah. That was just up around the corner on the right side. And before we come back, I'll show you where Darren saw the barn. This is Darren Lindsay. This is where he, where he says he saw it. Yeah. See, some of the gum trees are still there. Yeah. See there? Those gum trees were there back then. Oh, those are original. Yeah, so this, all these pines weren't here. This was just quite a nice open area back then. It was a glade, yeah, right. So this is where the Toyotas were here. Yeah. Remember that photo I said? Yeah, 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 I know, yeah, yeah, yeah. So where did he say he saw the car? Darren saw the car just up there, 100 metres from the body. Yeah, there's the body, 100 metres, roughly. It was just there, or just around the corner, it was parked there, on that side, facing up. I haven't mentioned this yet, but this sighting of a white Subaru, fitting the description of the Swede's vehicle, was seen no more than 100 metres away from where Urban's body was discovered, in this remote bush, by a man living nearby at the time. In my opinion, this is one of the most important pieces of evidence in this case. I've spoken to this man, and will delve into this in much greater detail in my investigation soon. But just to get your mind working, he told me he saw the car here, with keys in the ignition, gear in the back, and no one around. His exact timing is vague but it's likely that this sighting was Monday morning on April 10th, 1989, 73 kilometres away from where it was previously seen at Tararu Creek Road. Now the thought that I have to have, thinking right now, if there's a fence here, if you kill a person here in this glade, getting that body over the fence and back into the bush where it was eventually found. That's not something you can do. I mean, let's say if Heidi was in this glade as well. You can't do that. She's that's, you're going to have to come back to do that. You're going to have to come back to hide that body better. And that's what I think happened on that Monday. I think on that Monday, whoever it was, they came. They parked just up around the corner. They came back into the glade. And then they dragged the body up into the bush. Nothing else makes sense other than that. If it happened in the heat of the moment here, there's just no way you're going to have time to dispose of the body like that. And that's just plainly obvious. Unless Heidi was tied up or something, but that's not going to happen because unless there's multiple people involved, of course. But I think that him being put back in here later on, that was a clean-up job on the Monday. Fuck, it's crazy just standing here right now. You kind of have these almost sort of flashbacks of there's a fence here, and at some point he's been dragged, put over the top. And I've just got to say right now, just thinking about it, a body, Urban weighed 75 kgs. A dead body weighing 75 kgs to get that up over a fence and back in the bush back here. That would be a, a serious effort. A dead body is a dead weight. Very difficult to lift. Does it imply that there were two people that came back?
But if there were two people, might you put the body even further back in the bush? Speculation, of course. <sighs> I mean, today, coming out and getting out to Tararu and here, it's really, really given me a good understanding of what's taken place. Things are really starting to, to click. Right. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to find the exact spot, which I guess can tell you how thick this bush is. It would have been nice to, to have actually got to, you know, kneel down and see that spot to make a kind of personal connection for me. But coming all the way here and making this effort, you know, we haven't forgot, forgotten about you, Urban, and coming to New Zealand and not going home. And we're going to do our best to try and find Heidi for you. It's the least we could do. We haven't got a tape recorder here. When we come home, I may have to spend days and nights by the stereo. Please play all the songs for me when I come home. I heard a song by Chris Duberg right now. It was really good. I think it was something with missing you in it. About a guy who said goodbye and when he discovered after that that he still loved the girl, it was too late because he had found another. The song is starting with him sitting by a table with some roses and wine on it all by himself, thinking back. Heidi. Guilt is a Brevity Studios production. Written, produced and narrated by me, Ryan Wolf. All opinions expressed in this podcast are exactly that. Opinions. And are not a statement of fact by the podcast itself. All persons named are presumed innocent unless proven otherwise in a court of law. Voice acting in this episode, Anna Waddell as Heidi, and Dean Young as Nicholson QC and Judge Fata. You'll find further photos and video on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, and I highly recommend you join the discussion with over 1,400 other Guilt listeners on Facebook at the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. Guilt is a 100% independent production. We've never received a single dollar in taxpayer funding, and you can support us to continue to make great content, plus get ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and early release by becoming a Brevity Plus subscriber on Apple or Acast Plus. You'll find the details in the show notes of every episode. This podcast was written and edited without the use of AI. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.